0: We are blessed to have tonight our annual Charles Michael Scholar and Residence Program. And it's hard for me to tell you uh, that uh, Charles died on Thursday at 5.30. Um, and we've been in touch with Teresa, his widow. And she's so comforted to know that this is happening on this weekend, that we're studying and going forward because Charles deeply believed in Jewish learning and the beauty of the Jewish aesthetic. And uh, it was his gift to uh, make this program be a program for young adults. And there's a wonderful young adult gathering yesterday. And then also to then bridge it over into the larger congregation. So Zichrano Levracha, there'll be a memorial for him on January 3rd here in this sanctuary. Uh, We're taught. Am Yisrael is to be an Orlegoyim, to be a light unto the nations, that we have the honor and privilege of carrying Torah forward into the world. But then uh, the Tanakh reminds us that we need Nevi'im, we need prophets to keep us on the path towards fulfilling that sense of duty and purpose. Jewish prophets who lead us with their courage and their Uh, their intelligence and their vigor and their love of Torah. And they don't always make us happy to point out what we need to do, but it's so important for us to to hear their voice and make sure it's heard inside uh, sanctuaries like this. Well, it's our honor to have tonight one such person who's taken on that duty to lead Tru'ah, the rabbinic call for human rights, She's Rabbi Jill Jacobs, a graduate of the Jewish Theological Seminary. Uh, She's listed in the foreword as one of the most 50 influential Jews of our day, and one of the most influential rabbis. But I know that she doesn't care that much about those statements in the press, as much as she does going to where trouble is and trying to bring a Jewish and rabbinic voice of tikkun forward, of hope. Because ultimately prophets are hopeful people. They believe that we can learn and we can change together. So it's my honor to welcome our uh, scholar in residence for this Charles Michael 2019 lecture, Rabbi Jill Jacob. She'll be speaking tonight. Uh, For those who signed up for dinner afterwards, a dinner tomorrow morning at Torah study. And then uh, a discussion about Israel tomorrow at four o'clock. Welcome Rabbi Jacob.
1: Thank you so much to Rabbi Singer. It's, it's really wonderful to be here. I feel very tied in with your clergy in particular. Uh, I traveled to Israel a couple of years ago with Rabbi, the other Rabbi Singer, Rabbi Beth Singer, with a group of women ministers and rabbis. And uh, Rabbi Mintz and I were at the border together about three weeks ago. And Rabbi Rodich, who I saw somewhere, and Rabbi Fenvis and I have been in a fellowship program together, so I feel like I've got, not maybe not everybody, but pretty close, so it's nice to finally be here in person. Jacob went out from Beersheba, and he went toward Charan. He came upon the place, he encountered the place. Or more precisely, he bumped into the place. Wham! Jacob is running away from home. He's running away from his brother, Esav, who wants to kill him after Jacob stolen the blessing that rightfully belonged to the older son. He's trying to run away from everything he's known, and boom, he runs into this place. So what is this place that he runs into? There's a, a few options that our tradition gives us, but the predominant one is that this place is Har HaMoriah, the mountain on which ultimately the temple will be built, and it's also the place of the Akedah, the place where his father was almost sacrificed. That is, Jacob is trying to run away from his past and boom, he literally runs into the place of his family's greatest trauma, the place where his father was almost killed. For those of you who will be up early and be at Torah study tomorrow morning, we're going to talk a lot more about this place and about his experience in this place, so you can come back for more. But I'll just say that this might feel familiar to many of us, that over the past few years, we've felt like we, we feel like we keep running back into our history. The history that we thought was in the past, trauma that we thought was in the past, Nazis walking through the streets of America, we thought all of that was in the past. And it turns out that we can't actually run away. Boom. We keep running back into that place, just like Jacob. So how do we as Jews respond when we find ourselves encountering our greatest traumas, which we might have thought were past? There's one response which is to circle the wagons, to try to protect ourselves, to try to stay quiet, to hide out, to attract as little attention as possible, to retreat. But I would suggest that that's not the Jewish response. I want to talk about a few of the ways in which the rabbis and the Jewish communities connected with Truah are encountering our past, often in very difficult ways, but instead of getting stuck there, moving forward. TROA, as many of you know, is an organization that mobilizes a network of more than 2,000 rabbis across the U.S. and Canada to bring a moral voice to advancing human rights both here at home and also in Israel and the occupied territories. We organize around specific campaigns where we think the Jewish community can make a difference. We train rabbis and cantors to bring their moral voice into human rights locally, nationally, internationally, and we amplify the voices of rabbis and cantors as human rights leaders to say that's part of what it means to be a religious leader and it's part of what it means to be a Jew. So I want to talk about three of the ways in which our community, the rabbis and cantors connected with Truah and their communities are both encountering our past, and also bringing a moral voice toward moving forward. We know that after the liberation from Egypt, that one of the very first commandments that God gave us is to protect the people who are the most vulnerable among us. And that includes the ream, the sojourners, refugees, immigrants, however we translate that word. It's somebody who came from somewhere else and is now here, is probably not going back, and is vulnerable, can easily be taken advantage of. And so the Torah tells us at Sinai, God tells us not to oppress a ger, this stranger sojourner, for you know the feelings of a ger having yourselves, ourselves, been gerim in the land of Egypt. As many of us know, we're told 36 times or maybe more, depending how you count in the Torah, to care for the ger, to care for the stranger. This has become almost trite to just throw out that fact. But it's actually very unusual that God gives us this commandment right right after we come out of Egypt. Because the story could have gone a different way. You could imagine the people who have come out of this trauma of hundreds of years of slavery saying, you know what, we're just going to take care of ourselves. Why should we care about anybody else? Nobody took care of us. Nobody stood up for us. During all of those years of slavery. And so why should we care about people who are foreigners who are strangers? But no, the Torah says, actually, you have to translate that experience into caring for those who are now in the same situation. We're even told not to hate the Egyptians because we were Gayrim there, that actually we lived decent lives in Egypt and our lives were saved by being welcomed there during a famine, even if later on we became slaves. So God chooses the exact moment when we are at this peak experience at Sinai, having this relationship with God, It's feeling that liberation to make that point that we have to learn from our experience. We can't just take care of ourselves. The medieval scholar Ramban says that we know the feelings of the ger means that we know that every Gare feels depressed and is sighing and crying. And then he goes on and says that, that God will have mercy toward the Gare, just like God showed mercy to you, he says. And he says that God had mercy on them, us, not because of our merits, but only on account of the bondage. That is, Ramban is saying, this is actually a veiled threat. Don't think that you're going to be safe. Don't think that God's just going to take care of you because you're so special. Actually, God is standing with the one who is the most vulnerable, and so you better stand with that person also. As some of you might have already heard from Rabbi Mintz, a few weeks ago, a group of rabbis and cantors from Truah traveled to the southern border, to El Paso, on a trip that we co-organized with HIAS, a Jewish refugee organization. Like Jacob, we came face to face with some of the greatest traumas of our past. Some of you might have already heard, I believe Rabbi Mintz already spoke about this in some context, so some, some of you might have heard this, there there won't be a test, um, but as as you may have heard from her, we met families who were fleeing from their li- for their lives from places like Honduras and El Salvador, who are seeking asylum in the United States and finding out that the doors are closed, just like the doors were closed to so many Jewish families who are trying to flee our greatest trauma. As we know from the history of the United States, the doors for Jews to come into this country largely closed in 1924 with tragic consequences. We spoke with one woman who fled with her teenage daughter after a drug cartel threatened to kill them both, in part because of her work volunteering with USAID. She arrived at the U.S. border. She requested asylum. This is what you're supposed to do. This is how things are supposed to work. She passed what's called a credible fear interview, which is the very first step in the asylum process where it's determined just like it sounds that you have a credible fear of returning to your country. So she passed that. And under a new program recently implemented, she was sent back to Mexico to wait. This is a program that's called the Remain in Mexico Program. And so she's waiting there, now in a shelter run by the Mexican government. The government has put up these hastily constructed shelters just in the last few months. And she's likely there six months or a year just waiting for her next interview. In that shelter, there were 650 residents who were living there. These are all people who are applying for asylum, who have applied for asylum, and instead of what normally happens, which is you're given a date for your next hearing and you get to go to your family or wherever you're going in the United States, come back for your hearing, they're now waiting in Mexico, again, for six months, 12 months, however long it takes. So there were 650 people living in the shelter, 40% of whom were children, and they are terrified to go outside because they know that there are people who prey on migrants outside and they are likely to be kidnapped or robbed. This reminds us of our greatest traumas, the moments when we as Jews needed to come into the United States to save our own lives and weren't allowed. In 1939, there was a bill that proposed to bring 20,000 Jewish children children, refugees from Nazi Germany, into the United States. A representative of something called the Allied Patriotic Societies of New York argued against this bill, saying that these children will begin competing with Americans for jobs, and that there are no adequate provisions to prevent children from becoming public charges, and that these children would soon grow up and then begin competing with Americans for jobs, a situation particularly grievous in the face of present large unemployment. And then went on and say we're trying to be reasonable. But we must realize that this is just part of a drive to break down the quota system, to go back to the condition when we were flooded with foreigners who tried to run the country on different lines from those laid down by the old stock. These Jewish kids escaping Nazi Germany are going to come in and pollute the American system. They're going to be different. They're going to bring a different culture. So this unfortunately sounds extremely familiar some of the language we're hearing now and this bill did not pass and these 20,000 kids were not able to come here with with tragic consequences. So when we bump into the trauma of our past, when we meet people who are trying to seek asylum in the United States just like so many of our families and so many members of our community did, one option is to retreat into our trauma, to not be able to move forward. But that's not the Jewish response, and it's not how the Jewish community is responding, or has responded. Even right after the Holocaust, the 1951 Refugee Convention, which which sets out the rights of refugees, was an international response to what happened to us, and it was written in large part by Israel's representative to the UN at the time, as well as by other Jews who looked at our own trauma, which was extremely recent, and said, how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? And today, more than 70 synagogues have joined Trua's sanctuary network, so synagogues around the country who are committing to protecting immigrants at risk of deportation. Some of these synagogues are actually hosting families who might be deported. Some of them are working with churches that are hosting families. Some of them are putting all of their legal resources that they can muster toward helping people to avoid deportation. We have people like Cantor Vera Brookhysen in central Massachusetts, in Haverhill, Massachusetts, who came back from a trip to the border last year and organized with a Christian colleague an interfaith coalition that is now settling refugees, resettling refugees in central Massachusetts and visiting detainees. And we've already heard that many of the rabbis who are with us at the border are starting to organize their own communities already just in the last few weeks to visit detainees to support immigrants in their own communities. So this is how we as Jews move forward. We don't get stuck in that trauma, but we learn from the trauma to move forward and to learn from our lessons to support those who are now in the situation that we once were in. Our core narrative as a Jewish people already referenced is the narrative of slavery, that we were slaves for hundreds of years and then we experienced liberation. So at Trua, we've been working on the issue of modern-day slavery, of trafficking, of human trafficking for close to 10 years. And in 2011, we decided to go visit an organization that was working in the Florida tomato fields, with tomato workers, tomato pickers, who were trying to eradicate slavery in the fields until around that time, about 10% of the workers in the Florida tomato fields were in forced labor situations. And these workers, there's about 100,000 workers in the Florida tomato fields, and like I said, about 10% were in some kind of forced labor situation, basically indentured servitude. They had paid somebody a lot of money to get a job, and now they owed that person money and um, were sometimes forced with violence or with somebody holding on to their passport, other kinds of coercion to stay in these jobs. And so these workers created a program called the Fair Food Program in which they went to buyers to corporations like McDonald's, Burger King, Taco Bell and said, will you commit to buying only from growers that have zero tolerance for slavery, zero tolerance for sexual assault or harassment, that pay the workers on the books and that offer certain protections against some of the harsh chemicals that are used. And by the time we went down there, they had gotten some of the companies I mentioned, Taco Bell was the first one and Burger King, McDonald's to sign on. And so we went down with a group of 17 rabbis and we met with these workers and they said to us, you know, the company that we're trying to get to sign this agreement right now and that won't even sit down with us is Trader Joe's. And we said, okay, that's where our people shop. (laughs) That's our store. And so we started sending rabbis and their communities to Trader Joe's all around the country. We had Hebrew school, students delivering letters to their local Trader Joe's, we had communities protesting outside Trader Joe's, and there was one weekend in 2012 when we were going to have protests at about 40 Trader Joe's across the country with rabbis speaking at almost all of them. Thursday night before this weekend Trader Joe's calls and says we're signing the agreement. They did not want rabbis and Jews out there protesting. So they've signed, you can buy tomatoes there, it's good. Um, Your your tomatoes likely uh, come from Mexico, which is a a different story. Um, Or maybe Canada. But since then we've worked with this group of workers on getting companies like Walmart, Stop and Shop, um, other major corporations to sign onto this agreement. And now we've been working with them to to expand this beyond Florida and beyond tomatoes. We've worked with this organization, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, and a handful of other worker-led organizations to create something called the Worker-Driven Social Responsibility Network, which is bringing this model to other crops in other states, uh, to dairy in Vermont, to even the model has been copied in India and in Bangladesh, to say that we have to create models in which we know that we can purchase tomatoes or dairy or any other product and know that the workers who produced that weren't working in slavery. Because as Jews, when we sit around the Seder table and say, avadim Hayinu," we were slaves, we can't say that and ignore the fact that there's still slavery out there in the United States. Very famously in the uh, in the Seder, we're told that every single person has an obligation to see themselves as having come out of Egypt, and there's there's a couple there's a, a variation of this that instead of saying that uh, we have to see ourselves as having come out of Egypt, that says we have to show ourselves as having come out of Egypt. Instead of the to see oneself, tatzmo to show oneself, and one of the ways we show ourselves is to show that we've learned from that experience, that we're not stuck in our own narrative of slavery, that we're moving forward and making sure there's not slavery for anyone else. And then finally, I mentioned that Truah's work is 50% here at home, 50% in Israel and the occupied territories. Now, I'll say that when we talk about Israel, I know that emotions can run very high. I think people get very tense when we start to talk about Israel. There's lots of feelings, uh, lots of of anxiety. We can talk about all of that. You can come back tomorrow afternoon. We'll have a much more in-depth conversation. And that anxiety very much comes from our trauma, from the trauma of having lost our homeland already, first with the destruction of the temple in 586 and then in, in 70 of the common era. This this trauma of destruction, of uh, of being kicked out of our homeland. So we carry that trauma. Now, Jews, um, you know, even 2,000 years later, we still have multiple fast days. We still are are mourning the temple as though it happened yesterday. So we're holding on to that trauma. And sometimes when we talk about Israel, we run right back into that, and all of our uh, all of our um, fight or flight responses get triggered. And one of the challenges for us is to figure out how we can instead use that trauma to be able to work toward creating, to ensuring the human rights and the security of both Israelis and Palestinians. Often we talk about this is a zero sum game, that it's either Israeli security or Palestinians human rights. But instead we need to create a conversation that focuses on how we get both. How we get security for Israelis and Palestinians and how we get human rights for Israelis and Palestinians. How we can use our own trauma and experience of homelessness of separation from our land to ensure that there's a safe home for everybody who's, who comes from that place recently or farther back. One of the programs that Truah has that I'm most proud of is for rabbinical students. You might know that almost all of the rabbinical schools, at least all of the non-orthodox rabbinical schools have a year in Israel built into the program, first year for reform students, second or third year for conservative and reconstructionist and, and other students. And so these students are in Jerusalem for a year, and the Truah program, they're in their own institutions, they're studying all day, and but the Truah program, which is in addition to this, brings at this point more than 70% of these students to see human rights on the ground. So more than 70% of future rabbis who are in Israel for the year are going with us at least once a month to visit with Palestinian and and Israeli human rights leaders, to meet asylum seekers, African asylum seekers in Tel Aviv, to meet with people who are trying to change their own society for the better to ensure the human rights of everybody. So last year, a group we brought our students to plant olive trees in a Palestinian village These to replace trees that had been uprooted by settlers. This was a place where there's been a lot of violence against this Palestinian community. So our students came to plant trees. And they planted trees. And then the trees were uprooted again, the trees that they had just planted. And so our students came back and they planted the trees again. But this time, instead of just planting them, they attached to every single sapling a laminated card that had the biblical verse prohibiting uprooting trees even in times of war. So bringing that moral voice into these trees that they were planting with the hope that anybody who came by and wanted to cause destruction would be reminded that the Torah tells us that no matter what kind of war, even war, or political argument you're having with somebody else, you can't uproot trees. One of our students, Tyler Dratch, who's a rabbinical student at Hebrew College in Boston wrote an article afterwards where he said, after this year, I see even more clearly that my responsibility to Israel's wholeness will involve standing with and loving our Jewish state while not being afraid to speak out against injustice against Israelis or Palestinians. He said, calling out injustice should not be seen as an abandonment of Zionism, but rather the fostering of a deeper commitment. I know that a Jewish state is a state that provides security to all, that takes seriously the Jewish proposition that all people, even Palestinians, are created in the image of God. So this is how we model what it means to care about Israel, to care about the security of Israelis, the security of Jews, and also not lose sight of the Palestinians who are also experiencing a lack of security and a lack of human rights. Personally, I'm very proud to call myself a Zionism, but Zionism isn't just about having the trappings of a country, and it's for sure not about being so scared in our own country that we just hold on tight, that we're stuck in that trauma. We don't want to be like Jacob could have been, getting trapped at the Akedah, boom, just running into that place of, of trauma without being able to move forward. Instead we want to be able to take hold of our own history, saying that we don't have to be stuck in the patterns of the past, but instead we can make new history. And so Jacob in our parsha bumps into our, his past. He hits it really hard. According to we'll see this text tomorrow, but according to some midrash, God even kind of contracts the universe to just get him there even faster. Like really sets up the sets up even a wall to stop him in his tracks. And so he runs into his past, but he also runs into the future. Because the site of the Akedah where his father was almost sacrificed is also the site of the future temple. It's the site that reminds us of God's promise to grant his descendants, Jacob's descendants, a land of their own. So, right now, we might feel like we're like Jacob. We're just stopped in our tracks by the really unwanted and unexpected encounter with so many traumas of our past. And the Jewish response is not to get stuck there in the, tra- in the trauma, but to be able to envision the future, to dream as Jacob does when he lands in that place. To have an expansive dream of a sacred encounter and to use that dream and that openness to move forward instead of getting stuck to move forward together toward a better future. Shabbat Shalom.